before we begin, I'd like to read from James chapter 3, which will be the text that we'll cover this morning. We'll read the, the first, um, well, we'll read the whole chapter. There's 18 verses. Give us kind of an overview of, of what we're going to be looking at. James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The wisdom, this wisdom, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Heavenly Father, I just pray this morning that as um, I bring the word to these people and those who are watching online, that you would 
speak not only to their hearts but to mine. That you would cleanse us from sin and convict us of sin. That this would be a time of refreshing, a time of understanding what it is that you have for us. So, the way I view um, myself this morning is kind of like a waiter at a restaurant. I'm trying to bring the food out to you without messing it up. <laughs> and that's what I'm doing with the Word of God this morning. I'm going to bring it out to you and for you to consume. And I'm hoping to do that in such a way that it's not all, all over the place. So, here we go. James, the brother of Jesus, the physical brother of Jesus, his parents were Joseph and Mary. And so he, uh, he grew up um, not particularly fond of his perfect brother, as you can imagine. But later in life, came to know him as Lord and Savior. And he wrote the book of James and... Um, if I, I believe if James were alive today, were here today during this <clears throat> corona virus atmosphere that we are living in, I think he would write this chapter up. Had he not even written it before, he would write it today. I think it has a lot uh, to do with where we're at. How we're to, how we're to navigate through this. I'm not going to I'm not going to stay on that too much, but I just want you to be aware, I think, that, it, that the Scripture that uh, tells us that the Word of God is to all generations, the thoughts of His heart to all generations, it's, it's pertinent to today, even as it was written by James. So what effect does our words have on those who hear us? Are we speaking the truth in love? Do we control our anger and especially our tongues? Take David, King David in the Old Testament for instance. He knew that alone he could not restrain his tongue. And so he prayed and he asked God to set a guard over his mouth. He says, Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. What a great prayer. That's one of those prayers that you could do every day. You just memorize that little thing and just pray that every day. God, set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And I I came across uh, a guy by the name of Paul Tripp. You've probably never heard of him. But... Um, he, he came up with these four um, life-altering principles that apply to this chapter that we're going to look at in chapter 3 of James. I think they're really good. Here's the four principles he came up with. The first principle. God has a wonderful plan for our words that is far better than any plan that we can come up with for them. 
God has a wonderful plan for our words better than any plan we can come up with on our own. Second, sin has radically altered our agenda for our words, resulting in much hurt, confusion, and chaos. So sin has come in and taken that plan and altered it and caused a lot of hurt. A lot of confusion. A lot of chaos. That kind of describes where we're at today too. The third one is good news is that in Christ Jesus we find the grace that provides all we need to speak as God intended us to speak. In Christ Jesus we find all the grace we need to speak the way God wanted us to speak. That's the good news. So the fourth one, the Bible plainly and simply teaches us how to get from where we are to where God wants us to be. So when Jesus was in the upper room with His disciples before His crucifixion, and He told them not to fear, He said, because I'm going to send My Spirit to be with you, and He will teach you all things. He kept that promise. And that's why we can say the Scriptures, the Bible, what we have here, God's Word, is sufficient to teach us how to get from where we are to where God wants us to be. Especially in our Word. So I'm going to I'm going to make a propositional statement. So those of you who didn't take or didn't remember English, a propositional statement is a statement that sums up everything I'm going to say in one statement, but it's also a statement that is true no matter when I say it. So, I could have said this 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago. I can say it 2,000 years from now. It, it would still be just as true. It's that kind of a statement. Here it is. Here's the statement. It's real simple. Christians should be careful not to let their tongues cause strife and quarrels, but rather use them in wisdom to make peace in the church. Let me say it one more time. Christians should be careful not to let their tongues cause strife and quarrels, but rather use them in wisdom to make peace in the church. So let's look at the first two verses of James chapter 3. Let me reread them. It says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Why would James, in opening up the topic of the tongue give a warning concerning becoming a teacher at first glance it kind of seems strange he's off to it's almost make, think, makes you think that he's off topic but if you think about it a little bit speech is a teacher's primary way to communicate even during the coronavirus time by Zoom or whatever it is they're doing. 
speech is, and you know, speech can be a very dangerous activity. And so this is very true to open up in this way. I mean, James has already in his book broached the subject of the tongue because in chapter 1, two times in verse 16, I mean, in verse 19 and verse 26. In verse 19, James says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. So speech and angry, anger are to be slow. And listening is to be quick. And then in verse 26 of chapter 1, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. That's some pretty strong language. To declare someone's religion worthless. Let's look at verses 3 through 8. Starting in verse 3. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look also at the ships, though they are, are so great and are driven by strong winds are still directed by a very small rudder whenever the inclination wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defies the entire body and sets on fire the course of our own of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, the reptiles and creatures of the sea are tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. There are some pretty strong words about the tongue. This tells us these verses here, using illustration after illustration, tell us about the power in the tongue. The power of the tongue. But let no one say that words are insignificant or not powerful because they are very powerful. We sang a little bit ago, A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. In that, he mentions the Prince of Darkness whose rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Powerful. The phrase that Jesus uttered on the cross, it is finished, in the Greek is really one word. One word changes the course of human history. I like what Curtis uh, Bayon says, and he sums it up this way. It can sway men to violence, or it can move them to the noblest actions. Either way. It can instruct the ignorant, encourage the dejected, comfort the sorrowing, and soothe the dying. Or, it can crush the human spirit. 
destroy reputations, spread distrust and hate, and bring nations to the brink of war. Never say that speech is not powerful. How are we going to use it? Well, let's look at verses 9 through 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. These verses point out a fundamental tension in our use of the tongue. And it's hypocrisy. That's what this points out. It's hypocrisy. We say our Father on Sunday and we live like an orphan the rest of the week. James is really coming down on the tongue in the first 12 verses here. Is it really that bad? As he says, I mean, he said the words like, like it is set on fire by hell. I mean, he makes some strong statements about the tongue. And about how horrible it can be. Is it really that bad? I believe it is really that bad. Have you been following the news lately? Or do you belong to a church? Do you live in a house with people in it? It can get bad. I think you all would know that. If the tongue is so dangerous, then what should we do about it? And James doesn't leave us without something. So that's what these last couple of verses, 13 through 18, that's what those are there for. He didn't leave us without those. I'm so glad he didn't because he goes on in chapter 4. You guys realize that the Bible wasn't originally written in chapters and verses, right? That came way later, right? So when James wrote this, he wasn't thinking, okay, I'm, I'm done here and I'm going to start chapter 4. He, he didn't do that. So if you just keep reading right into chapter 4, he gets right back in. He come, climbs right back on this horse of the tongue and he goes right on, okay? And so, but right in the middle of this discussion, he gives us these verses 13 through 18. Verses that are worth our tongue. Verse 13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. James has already said in chapter 1 that obedience to the Word of God requires us to bridle, to keep a tight rein on our tongue. Instead of being driven by the evil of the tongue, we should be marked by what he says here in verse 13, the meekness of wisdom. I love that phrase. I don't know of anywhere else in Scripture where that phrase is given. The meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is treasured by those who have it and sought out by those who lack it. Now in this verse, there are three issues that James brings up. Examination, demonstration, and affirmation. So let's look at those three. The first one is examination. Because he asks a question. He starts out with a question. 
Who among you is, under, is wise and understanding? It forces the reader of this, whether it would be the intended reader that James was writing to, or the reader that God had intended, which is us, down through the years, down through the ages, who read this. Either way, the reader of this is forced to examine themselves and say, am I? How would you answer his question? That's what he wants. That's what he wants you to do. That's what God wants us to do. Is to answer these questions. When you come across a question in Scripture like this, it's directed to you. Answer. How would you answer? Who among you is wise in understanding? Examination. And then, depending on, if your answer is yes, I am wise in understanding, then he talks about demonstration. Because James encourages the wise man to show by his conduct that he has indeed received the gift of wisdom. He says, let him show by his good life, by his disciplined life. Let him show. We'll see. It'll be evident to those around him that he's wise. Just claiming that I'm wise is not enough. And if you've read any before this in James, you'll know he's really big on works that are not backed up, or in faith that's not backed up by works, is dead faith. So he's, and here he is again, saying it in just another way, another context. And then affirmation. And it's this, this whole idea that actions speak louder than words. It affirms that yes, you, this is a wise person. And so uh, it's a similar phrase, but it underscores the necessity of looking at a person's deeds to see whether or not his actions match his words. So let's look at verses 14 through 16, and we'll see the other side. It says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which, uh, which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So jealousy and selfish ambition are expressions of desires that are unfulfilled. Let me put it this way. If there's a conflict that you have or someone has with another person or one nation has with another nation. It could be small between two brothers fighting over Legos or it could be big two nations going at each other in war. doesn't matter. What's the source of that conflict? It's, what's the first question you want to ask? You need to ask is what do you want? What is it that you want? Because somebody's not getting what they want. They want something, and they're not getting it. And this other entity or person or group of people are standing in their way, keeping them from wanting it. 
So how did the conflict begin? How did it begin? Where was it born? Where's the conflict born? It's born when the I want morphs into I will have, I must have. It's a demand. I'm demanding it. So I go from a desire, just a, something you want, maybe a fine thing, maybe something that's okay to want. It's not a sin to want it. But now it turns into, okay, I have to have this. To, to, to bring me security, to bring me um, fulfillment, joy, happiness, whatever that I'm seeking, to give me that, I, to give me what I want, and those are really the things that I need, mean, but I'm saying I want this thing. Because I'm not getting it, you are a good person until you move between me and what I want. And now you're a bad person. That's where the conflict starts. And so I judge you in my heart or outwardly. I, I judge you. You're a bad person now because you're standing between me and what I want. And I don't stop there. I don't just judge you. I punish you. I might give you the silent treatment. I might avoid you. I might not want to be around you and just, just, just you know, make our relationship different than what it was. Less. It may be overtly. It may be something I, I, I may attack you physically, you know, whatever. Um, I may gossip about you. I may do whatever. We, we come up with. We're very creative when it comes up with, with when it comes to ways of coming up with ways to punish people because we're not getting what we want. Jealousy and selfish ambition are expressions of desires that go unfulfilled. A church that is filled with people full of jealousy and selfish ambition will collapse into disorder and violence. Notice the contrast from the verses, uh, these verses we just read, verses 14, 15, and 16, about the worldly wisdom. And the wisdom we read in verses 17 and 18, the wisdom from above is among other things full of mercy. Look at this in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable. By the way, the definition of unreasonableness, the best definition I've ever heard. It's a workable definition. It's never entertaining the idea that I could be wrong. That's unreasonableness in its purest form. But here we have that the wisdom from above is reasonable. It's full of mercy, it says, and good fruits. Unwavering, without hypocrisy. The wise man or woman is not reluctant to extend mercy to another, but eager to do so. Can't wait to do it. Is the first one to, to, to give mercy to someone else. Why is that? Those who know the wisdom from above are the very ones who have been granted mercy from Christ. God in Jesus was full of mercy toward us. 
we have the glad privilege of extending that mercy accordingly to others. And this starts with our speech. It also includes our works and what we do, but it starts with our speech. We're not going to go there, but in Matthew chapter 18, there is a story that Jesus gives. It's a very, very good story. You'll probably remember it. It's the story when Jesus told a story about a servant who was forgiven like millions of dollars. And then he went, after he was forgiven totally, and he went away and found a guy that owed him just a little couple bucks, and he... That, had that guy thrown in jail because he couldn't pay and wouldn't forgive him just that little bit. So he'd just been forgiven all this and he couldn't turn around and do the same in a very, very lower level of forgiveness. Jesus' point in telling that story is that the gospel, if the gospel does not come out of your life to others, then you don't have the gospel. At the end of that story, he told, he told about that man who was thrown into the sea or into the pit of hell. Basically, uh, he was under, he didn't have the gospel at all. It wasn't part of his life at all. The gospel we talk about that a lot, the Gospel. And how the Gospel is God reaching down to us and forgiving us of our sins. Paying through His Son's death on the cross. The death, the big, the huge death that we owe. How can we not forgive one another the little piddly things that they have? And you may think it's a big thing that somebody's done to But put it next to what God has forgiven you. That's the gospel. And we're to take that gospel with our word, with our speech, and give it to others. Full of mercy. So look again at verse 18. This last verse here. Because he's right after verse 18, he starts in, in chapter 4. What is the source of our quarrels and conflicts among you? So he... He goes into the source. What I've already explained to you about the source of conflict, I was just giving you chapter 4 earlier. Let's look at verse 18 of chapter 3. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do we want to have a harvest of righteousness? As believers in Christ, is that our goal? Do we want to have a harvest of righteousness? Do we want the end result of all of our actions to be in right standing with God? Is that what we're, we're moving toward, what we're trying to move toward? Do we want our relationships to reflect the gospel of Christ, who is the God of mercy? Is that what we want our relationships with people to reflect. This kind of fruit, as we see in these last two verses, can only be gained by sowing in peace. 
Therefore, only peacemakers can sow the kind of seed that produces the kind of fruit that is pleasing to God. That, that's what he's saying here. Only peacemakers can sow the kind of seed that when it springs up and produces fruit, that fruit is righteousness. And if that's your goal, then you must be a sower who is a peacemaking sower. So I come back to the proposition statement. And I'll leave you with this. Christians should be careful not to let their tongues cause strife and quarrels, but rather use them in wisdom to make peace in the church. I'll add an ounce in the church. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that You will rule our hearts so that we gladly and consistently speak for You. May You help us, O oh God, so that this world of evil will be transformed into a world of redemptive good. May You win the war for our hearts so that the battleground of words becomes a garden of good fruit where the seeds of peace produce a lasting harvest of righteousness. For it is in your beloved Son's name we pray. Amen.